This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... F20 as genre. Providence, home of Lovecraft and food. Pelgrane panel highlights. And Raelians. It blew up Kickstarter. It slid into Gen Con on a gurney with both guns blazing. And now Feng Shui 2 action movie role-playing is laying down the Kung Fu, the Gun Fu, and the Cybernetic Primate Fu at a retail store near you. In Feng Shui 2, you play a ragtag band of heroes. Inspired by the action movie canon. Especially the high-flying classics of Hong Kong cinema. Designed by me. Need we say more? Of course we didn't. But the gang at Atlas will think it's weird if we don't. Redeem your past misdeeds as a bullet-spraying killer. Heal the world through butt-kicking as the wise Sifu. Blast miscreants with the raw key power as a sorcerer. Channel the power of pure awesomeness as a transformed dragon. Or brain dudes with a parking meter as the big bruiser. 36 character types in all, bursting with furious action. Fight the bad guys who want to control the world. In the history-spanning conflict called the Chi War. Fought in the far past, the near past, a devastated future and now, now, now! For years, the number one question I got at cons was, when are you updating Feng Shui? Tons of people tell you the original changed the way they GM'd everything. And they're right, because they're experts on their own gaming experience. Well, now in a golden comeback for all time, Feng Shui has been updated, improved, streamlined... And clocks in at... 354 pages of gorgeously illustrated eye-smacking color. If your key powers can't stop a bullet, this stunning hardback can. You know it if you backed the Kickstarter. But maybe you bought the PDF only in order to support your local game store. Or like a full metal nutball neglected to grab the stunning GM screen. So now's the time to formulate a crazy plan that just might work. And contact your game retailer of choice. Reserving your copy of Feng Shui 2. That badass GM screen. And blowing up the movies, Robin's standalone book of essays on the action movie classics. Taking you inside the workings of 24 action movies. From the stone-cold classic to the unjustifiably obscure. Each essay shows you how the film delivers. And the lessons you can extract from it to enhance your own efforts as GM or player. So that's Feng Shui 2 in all its full-color glory. The GM screen and its likewise fetching utility. And blowing up the movies in all of its fun and dare I say it. You do dare, Robin. You do. Incisiveness. Now in retail. Go forth, dragons. Blow things up and... Save the world. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Cam Banks asks Ken and Robin, why is fantasy supposedly a genre in RPGs, but people mostly mean F20 fantasy? Why is there no equivalent in science fiction RPGs? I think this is an example of someone who already knows the answer, wanting us to tell them that there is a way out of the box or possibly just wanting other people to know the answer so they stop asking Cam. Uh, I, I, I suspect Cam knows the answer. Yes, this is what is known in the podcast business as a softball. So, Robin, do you want to take a stab at it, or should I take a stab at it first? Well, at, at the risk of over-schematizing, uh, and we can, you know, there exceptions will pertain, but in general, uh, people see science fiction as flowing from a premise, and fantasy... Uh, even the sort of original progenitors of 
what we think of as modern fantasy, i.e. the fantasy that informs D&D, as being a collection of tropes. And so uh, if something starts out as a collection of tropes, as in uh, Tolkien collecting uh, folklore and uh, different ideas of, of uh uh, different Nordic cultures and kind of all putting them together and then having, you know, here's this one culture, they're kind of like the Scythians, and here's uh, this other culture, they're kind of uh, uh, like us quiet English people who uh, like our tea, and there's this other mythology here, and I'm going to stick that in and add all of these together and create a world out of it. Or uh, Robert E. Howard, where it's like, well, let's uh, take this culture and move it over here and uh, jack its time stream into this and we'll have, uh, you know, Conan fighting Picts in one episode and Vikings in another and uh, we'll just all jam them together and it'll be cool. Well, that's what we're doing as uh, DMs in a, an F20 game and when we uh, say, okay, well, let's uh, take this chivalrous knight from medieval history and this uh, bare-chested barbarian from the very pages of Robert E. Howard and mush them together into the same thing and let's take Tolkien-style orcs and have them fight uh, Robert E. Howard-style sorcerers, and then let, let's add a bunch of... Uh, let's have a spaceship crash. That'll be cool, too. And so that, I think, gives F20 its huge power as a setting, which is that kind of almost anything can happen that you can justify as being quasi-fantasy-flavored, and that gives you huge space to improv. Whereas, say, when you think of science fiction, uh, we might want to consider space opera off to the side in a, in a corner for a sec, but that in general, the uh, science fiction will express an idea so that, you know, the foundation books express a certain idea about the uh, course of history and people's ability to manipulate that and history as a science. And so that whole future world or future worlds or galaxy or what have you is created in order to advance that one idea rather than uh, creating a, a, a universe where any crazy thing that you can justify happening can happen. Do you, do you find that a, a useful a false dichotomy to start out with? I think it's good to uh, start out on that. Uh, I, and I think that there's a part of that that's correct. I would say maybe rather than collection of tropes, I, I thought you were going to say the Science fiction comes from a premise and fantasy comes from a setting, which is kind of the same way of saying it, because a setting has, of course, got to be built up out of pre-existing things, whatever they happen to be, whether they're pieces of Earth or things that have been thought up. Uh, and the medieval uh, fantasy, which is by definition a sort of a throwback to previous lore, is already going to be almost by definition a collection of tropes, because uh, the era of making wax stuff up and calling it fantasy is considerably post-1974. And that gets me to the point that I kind of wanted to make, which is that when D&D came out in 1974, there was, or, you know, depending on how you want to count it, 74, there was very little fantasy known to most people. You had to be a deep alpha nerd to know anything besides Tolkien and maybe, maybe Beowulf, right? I mean, you had... You, this was before the big paperback publication of Robert E. Howard. This is before, uh, the big paperback publications of Jack Vance, really. I mean, you have, you have a little bit of, I mean, you, you have Dying Earth is sort of part of it, but even that was presented as science fiction. And they, they sort of took stuff out of that in a way, uh, to, to bring it into the fantasy stream. They had to nurture fantasy with science fiction, uh, sourced 
material from the jump. Right. There was stuff that people still kind of remembered from the pulps, but it hadn't been reprinted for a long time. And, right. And, and a lot of the fantasy never even appeared in pulps. I mean, Elric, for example, was in, you know, sort of one-off Insta novels uh, that came out in the 60s and then went away again. And it wasn't until uh, sort of Shannara came out that people realized that you could have huge amounts of money, and that was in 1977, huge amounts of money could uh, be put into the fantasy genre as a marketer, and you would get even huger amounts of money. And Shannara sort of opens the floodgates for the whole world of fantasy, which then reinvigorated eventually, because money will do that, the creative side, but it sort of blanketed the world with Tolkien knockoffs right at the moment that D&D was coming out and saying, hey, Here's what we think can all fit in a world with dragons in. And Shannara's like, yep, that sure can. And sort of nails down those troops in the bookstores for a decade. And I think that the accidental collection that, that Gary and Dave had pulled together out of, uh, Moorcock and, uh, Poole Anderson and Fritz Leiber and Robert E. Howard, then it becomes, it's, it's all moving into paperback in the seventies. In, in the late seventies as they're doing it. So they're sort of present at the creation of the genre in terms of most people's knowledge of it. And so that's why they, uh, F 20 fantasy seems more primal than even traveler does because when traveler comes out in 77, it's coming out after a 50 year tradition of science fiction that most people who are interested in science fiction know four or five very incompatible sorts of visions. They know Wells, they know um, uh, Heinlein, they know Asimov, they know uh, Bradbury, they know Clark, they know a bunch of, of of things that don't really all fit in the same universe, and especially, you know, don't fit in, as you said, space opera, in sort of the uh, Doc Smith uh, uh, thundering spaceships against the starry void type stuff that Traveler builds on, even though it's pretending to be the sort of um, cool, calm, galactic empire stuff that was big in the 50s. Right. And there's a, an interesting sort of cultural reception uh, PhD paper that somebody could do in tracing, uh, you know, exactly when the Robert E. Howard paperbacks start coming out. Because I think that I think that might be a little ahead of Shannara on a separate stream from Shannara, because that also, uh, you know, the, the Howard stuff kind of... Uh, fit into kind of 70s van airbrushing culture in a yeah. way and uh yeah, i guess i guess conan had begun coming out in in the in the late 60s and then yeah it uh it, it shows up over that course of the period and then they um uh they they stay uh they, they sort of get accelerated as the fantasy boomlet that lord of the rings has started they're, they're sort of the first post Lord of the Rings uh, pop fantasy, but since they're good, they don't have the same effect that Shannara does. And since uh, we're running far afield here, but, but such is the permission we grant ourselves that it's it's <laughs> also odd to remember now that both Tolkien and uh, Howard had different sort of counterculture uh, drug culture references to them, and I mean now we associate. Uh, Tolkien fans with a certain small C cultural conservatism, but there was a while there when uh, it was seen as uh, somehow fitting the, I guess the the pastoral impulses and the enjoyment of a uh, weed mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that came from the hippie movement. Although you know Tolkien, I can't think of an, an author who was a worse uh, fit for that, but he was sort of adopted by that for a while, and there was a sort of a a stoner quality to some of the earlier. The, the late sixties, early seventies, Tolkien art. And then it kind of went in another direction when all of these things to wrangle ourselves back on, uh, to Cam's question a bit more hit D and D and, uh, 
because, as you point out, there were comparatively fewer uh, sources and they all uh, were kind of more underground and discovered mostly by people who uh, increasingly came to it through gaming, that once D&D fiction came along, it sort of reified what fantasy was as a genre, as a collection of crazy tropes that you would uh, fit together. And then you started getting people who were reading D&D fiction without playing the game. And then you were uh, getting uh, books on the shelves that were derivative, not just of Tolkien, the way that uh, sort of Shannara is derivative of Tolkien, but also derivative of assumptions that you find in D&D. And things started to come out. And here we're moving into the 80s, where a standard fantasy novel was not necessarily so different than kind of a generic uh, D&D world. And again, that whole idea of, well, it's just a collection of tropes. And what I need to know as a reader before I jump in is how, what are your slight variations on the tropes? Which tropes are you using? You know, if your elves are too weird, maybe I don't want to uh, get down with that because maybe I have like a serious uh, elf thing and I want to make sure that they're, if not uh, blonde uh, loot strumming elves, I do want to make sure that they're, you know, nature oriented elves, but they're still sort of a beautiful, long lived, uh, uh, somewhat uh, superior mystical race. And I want to make sure that dwarves are one particular way. And if I find out they're robots, I'm going to be bummed. And so again, it's, uh, I think the readers are more and more trained to approach fantasy as a shelf full of tropes in which you don't want to necessarily encounter uh, too many variations. Whereas in science fiction, I think readers are still trained to, well, what is it that's specific to this world uh, or set of worlds that makes this distinctive? And unlike Clark and Heinlein and uh, all of the other people who uh, came before. Now, as I was suggesting, space opera is a little bit different in that I, I think now there's more also a strain of uh, you know, people who, as we move more and more to all genres being collections of, of tropes, that there, I think there is sort of more of a kind of a basic space opera uh, intergalactic setting that you can plug in and out of. But that's, I think, probably a kind of a newer phenomenon as uh, science fiction and fantasy move to being uh, subsets of the adventure genre in a way that they were less exclusively so in previous decades. The other thing, of course, is that uh, Traveler, which is, I guess, the closest thing that we almost had to F20, or I guess it would be uh, S6 science fiction, um, very rapidly tied its game to a specific world in a way that D&D did not tie itself to Greyhawk. So if you wanted to D&D in uh, uh, Lankmar, you could just go ahead and D&D in Lankmar, whereas to Traveler in... Uh, a Robert E. Heinlein future or to traveler in a James Blish future meant tearing out a bunch of backstory and swapping it out. It was harder work because it was a pre-established world in a way that even Greyhawk did not pre-establish what D&D was. So the ability of people to look at the game, like you say, and say, oh, I don't like those orcs. I want to do these orcs is harder in Traveler because if you don't like the Shodani, you're sort of stuck because now there's a big hole in your world. And, but in but if Traveler had, in some mystical other world, been sort of, yeah, there's an empire and whatever, but you were not really in love with that. And so there'd been psychic aliens and lion aliens and bird aliens and triples right. They could have trucked whatever. it up and gone, well, here's your Larry Niven sector of space. With, right. You know, his name erased. And here's mm -hmm. your here's your Heinlein uh, element. And uh, here's your uh, Asimov robots over here. And you can... Uh, mix and match them 
uh, in your own portmanteau science fiction world, the way that people do with D and D, uh, maybe things would have been uh, different. But uh, and I'm not sure we've ever still gotten away from that idea, though, because it, as I suggested, it is sort of more implicit in the source material that there's a, a purity of vision that's supposed to go with a uh, science fiction setting, uh, whereas uh, you know, fantasy remains. Oh, you got uh, wood nymphs and elves and uh, uh, evil sorcerers? Bring them on in. Bring them on. We can fit them all. Yeah, and, and I, I think that there is a degree to which the genre does reinforce that, but some of it is just the decisions made at the time, and maybe the decisions were made feeling constrained by genre in a way, and in, in the uh, GDW felt constrained by genre, Mark Miller did, in a way that Dave and Gary did not uh, when uh, they were putting together, you know, I don't know, you killed that manacore pretty fast. Maybe you're going to fight a blink dog. And, um, you know, that sort of bizarreness of D and D is part of its DNA in a way that the bizarreness of some science fiction is alien to traveler and therefore seems to be, feels like a harder fit. Um, even though, of course, mechanically, there's no reason you couldn't have gone that direction. It's not like it's super hard to, to build bizarre stuff in Traveler either. Yeah, I think if you were to say to science fiction fans, this is a galaxy where anything can happen, they would say to you, that's not science fiction. <laughs> right. And uh, again, uh, the uh, I guess the other sort of historical element of this is that Traveler comes out right as Star Wars is redefining science fiction out from under them. Because if there's one thing Star Wars is not, it is a game of, of uh, giant spaceships flying around with giant uh, rooms full of computer in a uh, comfortable... Uh, reactionary space empire. No, Star Wars is like is much more like the D and D campaign. Oh, and there's knights, and there's this, and there's j- samurai, and there's a giant flump monster, and whatever. In a way that uh, D, I mean, Star Wars feels more like a D and D campaign than it does a traveler campaign. And I think that is you know pretty much all you need to say about the or the the Godfather of science fiction RPGs. Yeah, it's, it's the it's a science fantasy or space opera tropes, and the, you know that you can envision almost anything happening in a Star Wars universe, except it's not the extrapolation of an intellectual idea. It's a mm-hmm. uh, quite explicitly a version of the uh, Joseph Campbell monomyth with a laser gun. And, you know, if there had been no uh, SF game until Star Wars was more implanted and then someone had done a, uh, you know, here's, you know, a mythic space opera game, uh, it would be interesting, as you suggest, to know uh, what we would have in in gaming, because I think on on a play utility basis, there's a great advantage to being able to have any uh, crazy wild thing you think of be something that can occur in your game. So that if you uh, you know you land on the sand planet and oh here are these uh, weird raider guys and they don't particularly express anything uh, about the thesis behind your setting, except that sand and raider guys go together and, hey, they're clunking you on the top of the head with their weirdo staff. Uh, that is probably, you know, an easier uh, set of uh, images and associations, or dare I say it, tropes to improvise with. So is there anything left of Cam's question that we have uh, yet to uh, masticate? I think that we could uh, maybe start teasing out exact uh, dates for the various bits of Appendix N and uh, (laughs) chart it like a beautiful flower. But on the other hand, we could also assume that Cam knew the answer going in and knows the answer coming out.
The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for pre-order by you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, can Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available for pre-order at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs. If we're waking up muzzily and aren't quite aware of our surroundings and we hear the housekeeping uh, and we've forgotten to put the do not disturb uh, plastic thingy on the doorknob, we know it's time for another travel advisory. And this time Providence has brought us uh, a travel advisory full of H.P. Lovecraft and food that probably would have terrified H.P. Lovecraft because indeed, yes, Ken is just back from Necronomicon 2015 and uh, we'll uh, talk about your broader explorations in the uh, eldritch space of Rhode Island. But first, uh, why don't you uh, paint a little word picture of Necronomicon for those who might want to attend in future years. Necronomicon happens every two years on the weekend that is closest to Lovecraft's birthday, which is to say August 20th. Uh, this year that it started on August 20th, which was a Thursday. And so that was the opening ceremonies. It brings, I, I didn't ever hear an absolute number, but I heard somewhere between one and 2000 people. That's more than I was picturing. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's it, 2000, maybe the upper bound, but again, this was the 125th anniversary. So there may have been more people coming than, uh, than on a normal Necronomicon, but the, the, the crowd comes out to, uh, listen to panels and indeed to academic papers that are presented on various topics. There's what they call the Armitage Symposium, where genuine academics present genuine academic papers to the dumbfounded stares of people who just wanted to hear about <laughs> Cthulhu. Is this where I buy my um, plush Cthulhu? I'm so confused. I, I, I laugh. I'm sure that there are plenty of people who came out and heard 
uh, academic papers. And that's what they wanted to hear was academic papers because they're in the room on purpose. There were plenty of air conditioned spaces in that convention to go to if you didn't want to be there. Uh, and then there's other panels that are more uh, standard sort of science fiction convention type panels where you get a bunch of authors who all talk about Clark Ashton Smith. They all talk about what was the economics of the pulps in the 1920s and how does that dr- drive? What do we know? What can we tell about Lovecraft from that? Or they talk about, you know, gosh, Lovecraft, it, ter- so it seems Lovecraft had some retrograde and unseemly social views. Uh, who's never talked about that? We should talk about that. And so they have a whole bunch of those panels. And then there's also gaming that goes on. Uh, pagan, uh, the pagan guys show up in force and there's a good deal of Call of Cthulhu happening and various, uh, uh, sort of um, homebrew Lovecraftian game experiences. The guys from the film fest bring out movies so you can go to do a movie track. It's like a full on convention only focused very, very closely around our boy HP. And another thing is that since it's in Providence every year, you get to see a little bit of the city and you get to go out and, and look at Lovecraft's houses and do the sort of walking tours uh, that are organized by uh, the doyen of Lovecraftian geo tourism. Uh, psychogeography in, in a way, uh, our buddy Donovan Lux, who is uh, the author of uh, sort of one of the first uh, coherent uh, tour guides on the topic and has only built up his knowledge ever since. And he, this year, I think he sort of ran it uh, with lordly uh, majesty, having sub tour guides out doing things uh, from sort of his script or by his direction. But a lot of these sub guys are people like Daryl Schweitzer who know their stuff already. And so uh, each tour is probably a little bit different. So your Joshi tour is going to be one thing and your Daryl Schweitzer tour is going to be another thing. So did you uh, go on any of these tours yourself? Uh, No, because I last came to Providence in 1990 for the Centennial. Uh, when they had a similar thing, although I don't know if it was officially a Necronomicon, but like that when it was a half academic symposium, half, uh, science fiction convention, half, uh, goofy celebration of Lovecraft. You can have three halves because it's non-Euclidean. Because it's non-Euclidean. And so I'd done the walking tour then. And since I came out this year, not just 25 years older, but into a more humid armpitty sort of weather, I felt that I did not need to walk around Providence uh, and see a, that indeed they had not yet knocked down the shunned house or whatever. In fact, the tour that I went on in 1990 was better because they had knocked down uh, the St. John's, uh, the, the church on Federal Hill, which I believe was St. John's, that Lovecraft based The Haunter in the Dark off of, and they knocked it down in 92. So I, as of, of the last Lovecraftians to see that uh, particular edifice standing. So I'd done my my big Lovecraft tourism already and didn't see the need to do it again uh, 25 years later. But if I'd wanted to, I could have. So did you uh, take in any uh, Lovecraftian sites in uh, Lovecraft country? Or do you have any uh, observations about uh, what it is about Providence that those who've not been to Providence don't get about Lovecraft's writing? I think one of the things that you do notice about Providence is that it is a very small, physically it's a small town and you can, you could walk all over it in, you know, if you were a walkie type person, which Lovecraft was, even while dying of cancer, he'd walk for miles and miles. There's a lot of hills. So your, your legs will get uh, super strong when you do it. And if you know the geography, for example, the Fleur de Lis building, which is where Wilcox lived in Call of Cthulhu, that's, you know, you, you turn the corner and you pass the McCormick and Schmicks and you're going up the hill and there it is. That's the Florida Lee building. So you're running into sort of little Lovecraftian sites the whole time. And of course, there's the fun of playing would Lovecraft have hated this building? <laughs> uh, 
uh, throughout, which is, which is great fun. And of course, Lovecraft, I mean, we will look at a building now and we'll say, what a lovely old building. It's, it's, it's a nice art deco or art nouveau and it hasn't been, uh, monkeyed around with and no one has uh, torn the front off. And Lovecraft, of course, hated art deco and art nouveau architecture. Uh, So the brutalist buildings and the international style stuff that's in, uh, Providence would have just sent him, you know, screaming into Narragansett Bay to dunk his head because the, uh, there are some ugly damn buildings in Providence now. There is a brutalist, I don't even know what it is, something that's on the hill right behind the Athenaeum. So it's basically right across where Lovecraft, uh, it, it's probably something associated with Brown University. And it's right behind the Athenaeum. So it's right where Lovecraft used to live is right on that hill. And he would be able to look down into the library windows of uh, what, the, uh, what he said, the, look into the windows of the John Hay Library. So he'd be able to look kind of catty corner at this giant concrete alien monstrosity Logan's run box uh, that exists there. So that was kind of an interesting, you know, you get a real sense of what Lovecraft is talking about when he talks about alien architecture or things that are, that are wrecking the, the proper proportions of a, of a city by looking at, you know, people who build a brutalist building, not in a Chicago or a Dallas or somewhere that doesn't have anything going back before 1850 anyway, but in a city where, in theory, the building you knocked down to build that was a perfectly nice Georgian building. Well, you're speaking of it as alien, but there's nothing more geometrical than brutalist architecture. So perhaps uh, what that is all about is getting big, blocky, solid, accessible, uh, granted ugly, but, uh, you know, cubes and stuff that is, uh, you know, the opposite of the non-Euclidean space. So maybe it's all being installed there in order to, uh, you know, it's some, uh, whatever the Delta green equivalent of, uh, you know, HUD is, uh, their mm-hmm. job was to install all of that stuff to, uh, you know, tamp down on all the weird angles and all the Edgar Allan Poe style Gothic structures and try and, uh, prevent, uh, providence from spinning off into the other realm and perhaps those are kind of so the, we're seeing there is like the restraining bolt that's been screwed down yeah it's a, it, into yeah, providence it's a, to they're, keep it they're from the hideous anchors required away. in order to yes. you know yogg will put up with a lot but uh but le corbusier no thank you yes although uh le corbusier had his own occult tendencies so don't be don't believe the hype my friend at the show, I got to be on a, a Cthulhu uh, Eldritch Gaming panel, a history of gaming Cthulhu with Sandy, among other people, uh, Sandy Peterson. And I was on a live UK style comedy panel show with the HP Podcraft literary podcast guys. And also, if you are a any kind of dilettante Lovecraftian like myself, well, right there is S.T. Joshi and right over there is Robert M. Price. And hey, Peter Cannon is there. And so you can talk. As intelligently as you feel able with the people who talk the most intelligently about Lovecraft. And that all by itself is pretty terrific. And everyone, of course, is very accessible and nice. And I, I met Ramsey Campbell, for example, which was a, a great thrill. He claims, uh, politely, although not entirely convincingly to have heard of me. So <laughs> obviously Ramsey Campbell and I are best friends now. Yeah. So it, it's just a terrific experience all the way around. And the guys that run it. They now have, they've been sort of part of a program to raise Lovecraft's cultural profile in his hometown. So when I went there in 1990, there was nothing about Lovecraft. There was the gravestone that had been put up and that's it. You had to make your own fun on the walking tour. You had to do everything yourself. Now there are plaques 
uh, here's where Lovecraft was born. There's a HP Lovecraft square that they've, uh, sort of created that, that I think the corner of Angel and Prospect, there's, you know, like a little intersection where he would have walked a lot and they say, this is HP Lovecraft square. And for the festival, the city, you know, they, the, the mayor's office of cultural affairs sent their cultural affairs officer over to welcome us all in mostly generic, uh, terms, but still the mayor is there on purpose. Despite being Portuguese, which Lovecraft would have, again, spent hours shrieking about. But they've been really trying to make Providence aware of, of the sort of hidden, if occasionally disturbing, treasure that they're sitting on. And I think Providence has responded. So, the you know, the cab driver in knew of Lovecraft, even though he was like, so how many books did this guy write anyway? You know, type questions, not... Uh, you know, he was not deeply yeah. instilled in it, but the people and the, and the city of Providence sort of have recognized that this is a, a priceless cultural heritage and they're really beginning to, I think, uh, move into it. And of course, the society was, I think, behind putting his bust in the Athenaeum library. So there was a lot of other, um, uh, there's a, they do a, a, a really good job even between shows of, pushing Lovecraft's profile in, in Providence and making, using that as a, as a way, I guess, to anchor a sort of, uh, art, uh, radical culture that of course Providence has never been a great art town, but it's always been a center of radical free thought in America. So to have, uh, Lovecraft detourned to that extent is I think both fitting for the history of Providence and great fun and a way to celebrate things that Lovecraft was genuinely radical and revolutionary about, as well as the stodgy parts that we, uh, sigh and move on past. Uh, well, speaking of moving on, I guess we should quickly move on to the uh, food hut elements of your trip. So you have uh, in your notes here that you went to uh, the Den Den Cafe, which is some sort of uh, hub of pork belly culture. Providence as a whole was crazily pork bellied. There was way more pork belly than I would have thought in a place that far from Iowa. The Den Den Cafe is sort of a hybrid Japanese Korean place. They have a bibimbap. They have bento boxes. Uh, and what I got was the squid and pork belly barbecue thinking, well, that's not something I'm ever going to get ever. And it was terrific. It was squid and pork belly Korean barbecue. And then we went to this little tiny breakfast place, like literally 10 seats called kitchen, which was a crazily long wait. And do not do that. If you have to be at a panel at 10 30, I can promise you. But the bacon was you know, the thickness of an old copy of Vogue magazine before the recession. <laughs> this hit. is the September <laughs> issue bacon. Yes, it's the September issue bacon. And, and uh, of course it's served on top of the home fries, which means that the home fries are the best home fries you've ever eaten because they're just liberally coated in the bacon grease from the bacon, the bacon. And it's all cut and cooked right there by the one guy, which is why the delay. Um, <laughs> but oh Lord, is it great stuff? Ken's ramen, which is where we ate another time, had a pork belly, the char siu pork belly, but that was off. They, they'd run out because everyone had wanted it so much. So we were forced to have just really delicious, normal people ramen, um, and uh, a toke, a tuna, a raw tuna toke that was crazily good. Uh, as well. And then I guess the final thing that I didn't eat pork belly at was at this, uh, Italian or it was in a, kind of an American bistro called Red Stripe. We asked the, uh, Mater D where we had lunch, where was the best clam sauce in town? And he sent us to Red Stripe, which was not technically clam sauce, but there was a whole ton of clams in the Fra Diavolo sauce. So 
Uh, I can definitely recommend if you are a fan of Fra Diavolo sauce and of fresh caught Rhode Island clams, which by God, you ought to be if you're in Providence. Yes. Go to Red Stripe, get the Fra Diavolo sauce, and it's just catty corner from HBL's birthplace. So you can go to the, what they call the Lovecraft Starbucks because it's the Starbucks right near his birth location. And the baristas are deep ones. The, the baristas, well, I don't know if they're that deep. They think they're deep. And the uh, and the final thing that I had uh, in Providence, which I had not expected, was really, really, really good pizza. And the best of it uh, was a p- place called Pizza Gourmet that had a margarita pizza that you, you would swear it was cooked in the garden where all the vegetables grew. It was so crazily fresh. And there was a balsamic component to the, uh, to the, to the sauce or to the topping that just brought everything out to crazy, crazy life. So it was your standard basil and tomato, uh, pizza and cheese, but with a, with a balsamic, uh, component to the sauce that was just amazing. So I can definitely recommend the margarita pizza at Pizza Gourmet, even though it is, of course, the flat, weird pizza of other cities, not the proper pizza of Chicago. <laughs> well, uh, now that uh, we have everybody uh, driving to uh, Providence for uh, uh, pork belly and pizza, I guess we'd better uh, come up with some more content for them during the drive. So it's time to head on to our next segment. Time once again to return to another time when Ken and Robin recycle audio. And today, Ken and oh, Robin recycle audio. We have an incoming hut. It's unannouncement hut. Unannouncement hut. It's the hut where you unannounce things. Uh, so, uh, on a previous episode, uh, we said that uh, I would be doing a uh, Robin Writes About Stuff series for Prowl Grain Press. And when I pitched that uh, to uh, Simon and Kat, uh, at our meeting at Gen Con, and they immediately said yes. I had no idea because it was the middle of the day, and they seemed perfectly uh, fine, both of them. But apparently, they were both completely drunk. And, wow. and the next day at the panel, where they told me to announce, well, it, I believe that with 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 Cat, but with Simon, I think it would just be his affect. Also completely drunk, <laughs> and so it turns out uh, that when they got home, they figured out uh, some other thing. Uh, that they want me to do with that chunk of time that I've set aside for them. And it's a super exciting thing that we're uh, uh, very happy to uh, all be working on. And we will announce that at a future date. But at the moment, we have to unannounce Robin uh, writes about stuff. I will continue to write about stuff, but not in the writes about stuff format. So unannouncing. Okay, on with the recycled audio. Uh, this is from our Pelgrane panel, aforementioned Pelgrane panel, where I made that announcement that we unannounced. And here's some other announcements from the uh, Pelgrane panel. This is Simon announcing the upcoming Fearful Symmetries campaign for Trail of Cthulhu involving magic and England. And what more do you need, really? Um, there are two connected uh, Trail of Cthulhu uh, books that we've been working on for a while. Uh, Fearful Symmetries and uh, the Book of the New Jerusalem. Uh, Paula Dempsey, who wrote uh, the Book of the Smoke, um, 
which is a kind of esoteric guide to London in the 1930s, has written a book with folklore and fairy tales across the entirety of uh, uh, England. Uh, and that's the companion book and works in a similar way to a new book uh, called Fearful Symmetries, where the players are all members of an occult group. So you start off and you decide whether you're going to kind of be Enochian or uh, Blakean or what, what the kind of magic that you do. And then you have to fight uh, against kind of occult mythos entities uh, or other groups who are similar to you. And you build up resources across the country. You go to fake places using the other book that you have. Um, and uh, you develop your, your, your power. At the same time, of course, because it's a mythos book, there's a cost of, uh, of dehumanizing to your power. So I've played in this, we played like a 15 session uh, campaign of this and it was really good, but quite horrible as we all started to have to choose between having the magic we needed to fight our, our opponent, which was like a, a, a dragon, and they ended up being serpent men. We were all turning into serpent men. It was just horrible. Uh, so those two books fit nicely together. They're the kind of echo of book pounds in Book of the Smoke. Uh, the uh, Book of the New Jerusalem is mainly complete. Uh, fearful symmetries we're hoping to have in playtest by the end of the year. And here we have Palgrain Press co-honcho Kat Tobin talking about the exciting story game anthology she's putting together. Um, so another thing that we're working on at the moment um, that we're hoping to release in December this year is... Um, are kind of it's our first ever I think foray into story games. Um, unless you count drama system. Unless I count drama system, which kind of I would, but that might be an argument. So let's not put that here. Right. <laughs> Let's not quibble about semantics in a promotional seminar. <laughs> <laughs> I think if we can give Robin credit for something, we should. <laughs> Let's quibble about semantics. Right. <laughs> so, so it is possibly continuing a trend of story games <laughs> forays uh, on, on the part of Pellegrin Press. Um, and basically it's going to be an anthology of story games, as yet untitled, which is why it's called Story Games Anthology in the version. <laughs> um, despite the fact it's going to be out in December. Um, and it's it's basically a completely mixed bag. There's going to be you know a couple of fantasy games, a couple of kind of more modern day games. Um, but the, the key things are, is that they're all kind of going to be um, very player interactive, interaction based. Um, they're all by kind of newer authors who are like based in um, based over in Europe. Uh, so yeah, it's um it's kind of a, a quite a different book to the kind of things that we've done before, but um, but it's good. It's going to be very very interesting and an exciting book. I think. So I'm excited about it because uh, we've play tested a couple of the games so far. Um, and they've just gone really, really well. Like for from newer writers, like just straight out of the box, they're just really, really great experiences. Um, so yeah, it's been and, and I've run a I've run a couple of them with uh, my uh, with a writers group, none of whom are uh, role players at all. Um, and they they are games which you can kind of read out what to do, and go through them as if they're uh, uh, straight out of the box. Um, and they've gone extremely well um, for people who don't know anything about genre. Uh, if you just describe it as, oh, it's a way of creating an interactive narrative. It's like, oh, right, off we go. That's exactly what we're doing. Um, and they're, they're really, really strong games. I, you know, every, every one that I've played, I think I've done most of them, has just been very, very strong and simple to learn and play. And now this is Ken announcing 
the upcoming gumshoe iteration of Delta Green called The Fall of Delta Green. And as a special, special bonus, we have Shane Ivey and Scott Glancy of Arc Dream giving their spins on Delta Green and The Fall Thereof. We have big-footed Cthulhu long enough. Um, we are uh, in a new era of sharing and caring, and uh, our good buddies at Arc Dream are bringing uh, Delta Green back once more into the uh, focus, into the spotlight, into the brand-new uh, post-Obama world now. It was the post-Bush world when it started, but <laughs> soon it will be the post-Obama world. Thanks, Obama. Um, uh, thanks, Obama. <laughs> And uh, we are right there uh, with The Fall of Delta Green, which will be a gumshoe Delta Green book. Um, and it will be set during the previous time that Delta Green was a legal part of the United States National Security Establishment. Uh, it will tell the story of Delta Green's uh, brief summer and complete fall in the 1960s. Uh, it will end with the operation in uh, Indochina that turns it into an illegal cowboy op, but it will let you play throughout the 1960s as the United States' uh, covert anti-mythos warriors. So we'll probably get into the Congo, the Aden, you know, all the other sorts of fun, plus plenty of Vietnam for all your uh, fun and games. And, of course, San Francisco. What's going on there? <laughs> Summer of love, etc. That kind of stuff. So it'll be, a, it'll be, I believe, a core book, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah? yeah. So it's going to be a core book. It's going to be how to uh, it's going to take the organizational stuff and the bonds and things from Delta Green, uh, the new Delta Green RPG. It's going to port those over into Gumshoe so that you'll be able to play all of the new great stuff that uh, that uh, the Arc Dream guys have come up with, Greg and Scott and Shane, and uh, play them out in the Gumshoe setting. If you've already been a Knights Black Agents or Trail of Cthulhu player, here you go. We got your espionage, we got your Cthulhu, and we've added uh, the 1960s just so that you have... Uh, Madness and chaos and disaster, <laughs> as is appropriate. Um, uh, so it'll be pretty good. I think that we will be including it as part of the uh, Arc Dream Kickstarter for the Delta Green, which is itself kickstarting in September, right, Scott? That is correct. Okay, so we will be a we'll be a product, uh, an add-on product in that Kickstarter, and then that means that it will come out sometime in the next uh, probably what spring 2016 is a possibility. Or summer 2016. Summer 2016. <laughs> Gen Con. If Gen Con. let's let's say right now, cursing it forever, Gen Con 2016. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're cursing Thanks, yourself. Ben. I know. Yeah. It's you have to deliver. But uh, <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, Fine. So it, it it should it should be uh, very fun for me to do. I'll get to go back and uh, and read a bunch of stuff about the 1960s. Uh, there's a guy named Rick Perlstein who wrote a book called Nixon Land, which is he is a very very uh, I, he's a friend of ours. Uh, in, uh, he lives in Hyde Park, or he used to, um, and he is a very, very upbeat democratic socialist. And he wrote this book sort of as a horror story of how no one in their right mind voted for Goldwater in '64, <laughs> and no one in their right mind voted for McGovern in '72, and what happened to America to make both of those statements correct. Um, I think that that will be sort of their, our domestic substrate, and then obviously we've got all manner of fun going on overseas in the 1960s. Um, and in terms of uh, my personal experience, and Kat also, we just, the play for Delta Green, just really, really love it. We've had a fantastic time playing it. it uh, and I've just read 
so we play tested it, and I've just read the new introduction to it, and it really, it really brings home what it's what it's all about. That you know, information. You need information to to deal with a mythos. The more information you get, the worse it gets for you. So you always have to balance knowing what you need to know with the effect of knowing what you need to know and the effect it has on other people. I mean, I'm sure you can't even fail the rules to do what you need no, to know. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> help yes, and, 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 and we'll be, uh, there will be as much Dennis Detwiller art as he can afford, I think, is the plan. Um, so it's going to look really, really great. I'm going to uh, punch it up as, as zingily as I possibly can, following in after Greg and Shane and uh, and Dennis and Scott's work on uh, the Delta Green Core book, which I will also be contributing bits and bobs to here and there. So uh, I think this is going to be a really great, you know, regardless of what flavor of Cthulhu is your flavor, this is going to be a really great condiment to have on your plate, maybe even something of a main course. So if you want, we have lovely uh, postcards up here. You can take them, pass them out. Feel free to Twitter it or Facebook it or Instagram it or whatever you kids do nowadays, Snapchat, uh, I don't know. A, there will be a supplement for it as well. Yes. We, we're not entirely sure what that will be in. Because yeah. a lot of it uh, depends on, we. Uh, there's going to, what, what's the name of the, Cthulhu by Arclight, is that what it is? Uh, Cthulhu by Arclight was a project that was going on in Vietnam. Yeah. And, and that, is that going to be a, an add-on on you guys' Kickstarter as well, or is that still under discussion? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, so 60 Stone Press, hi everybody, was... Uh, <laughs> Look, everyone, it's Shane Ivey. Right. Art Dream. Um, so 60 Stone Press was, uh, it, it has been working on Dulubay Arclight for, for a long time, and it's kind of taken a few different permutations, and originally it was going to be Delta Green in Vietnam, and it sort of evolved pretty quickly into a larger... Um, a larger Vietnam yes. War yes, yes. setting book by them. So Delta Green became kind of uh, slices of it, but not the core focus of it. So yeah, so I'm still I'm still sort of talking to Adam Crossingham and uh, and all those guys who are all all you know old friends of ours. They're great guys. Uh, they did the Black Seal magazine. If you if you uh, if you're if you're lucky enough to see that, yeah, you need to find that on RPG now. But um, yeah, so we're talking to them and and, and uh, we've talked to them about uh, about sort of helping them launch um, launch ArcLight as part of uh, as part of the Delta Green thing, making it either an official sort of Delta Green thing or, or something. So at this point, it, it's been developed all this time as a Call of Cthulhu 6 um, project, so I expect they're probably just going to stick with that rather than reinventing the wheel for 7. But, um, but for example, if that book is part of the Kickstarter and has 10 Vietnam scenarios in it, the yeah. odds of us doing another book of Vietnam scenarios <laughs> somewhat less. Yeah, so, so, we're, so we're, we're sort of, you know, I'm, 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 in, I'm in close... Uh, cahoots with, uh, with Simon and with Adam to make sure that everything sort of fits yes. together. And Any does, chance we just sew them together into some sort of hybridized monstrosity? That would be yeah. unthinkable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. It, 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 it's an important thing, though, to make sure that they uh, that they each enhance the other. Yeah, right. The, the, the goal is to have all three books that all three of them provide yeah. uh, play experiences and possibilities. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're talking about, uh, we're, we're looking into doing, with the Delta Green Kickstarter, we're looking into doing, you know, a couple of other things um, with Delta Green and other rule sets that similarly are sort of focused on a particular time, a particular era. Uh, it was largely inspired by this idea because mm-hmm. it was a really solid idea that we, that we discussed mm-hmm. um, that we discussed a while back. So, the way it will work logistically to make it very straightforward is that if you get the um, 
the add-on, get it as an add-on for the Kickstarter. It will come to you when it's ready. And if you get the Kickstarter, then obviously that will come to you when it's ready. So they, they will be shipped out as soon as they're ready, regardless of which one comes first. Right. So you won't have to wait for both books before you get both books. Yeah. Yeah. Who would do that? What <laughs> kind of a monster would do something like that? That makes too much sense. Yeah. yeah, but it's going to be fun. I mean, you know, Ken's going to be taking the lead on the yeah. on the Vietnam book, um, and or the uh, in, '60s book. In, in, yeah. Yeah. In the, the, yeah, so in uh, in close, you know, but but, uh, but in close conjunction with uh, yeah. with the main Delta Green team. So we're all on the same right. page, and it's not like we haven't worked together. Before. No, we're all we're all good friends and familiar with each other's yeah. design goals and foibles. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just hoping you figure out a way to work in Delta Green and the assassination of what's his name, Lincoln Rockwell, the head of the American Nazi Oh, party. there's so many assassinations. <laughs> <laughs> the 60s replete with some of our best assassinations. <laughs> so if you are an assassination <laughs> connoisseur, that is the decade that yeah. you want to start collecting. All the good ones have yeah. Well, not all the good ones. Well, the best ones. Yeah. They haven't even found out who killed Olaf Palm. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, he's Swedish, so, yeah. But it's not a priority. But uh, they... But Americans. People that matter. <laughs> well, American might have killed him. Okay, that's... Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Anyhow, there's, there's, there's plenty of, of meat on the 60s bone, even outside Vietnam, and yeah. there will be... I definitely promise you Vietnam in uh, the fall of Delta Green, mm -hmm. if only because you might wind up buying it standalone. And right. you, all, you know, heaven forfend you buy a 60s book and there's no Vietnam <laughs> in it. That's crazy. It's like saying there's no cardamom in this. Right. right. Uh, so anyway, there's, uh, there, there's, there's going to be a good bit of, of stuff, but you know, I am also looking very hard at the Congo. I just found a memoir written by a guy who was a mercenary captain there. And the Congo is the other fun war in the 60s. <laughs> yeah. Now, we don't worry. We already name-dropped it a little bit. Yeah. So we're completely asleep at the wheel. Of right. No, no. I, I trust you well, to find every disaster. <laughs> um, are there any specific questions about uh, the fall of Delta Green? In keeping with the other Hellring core books, will there be a soundtrack? Or is, is a soundtrack on the schedule? Probably uh, more, more answerable best question. soundtrack. Yeah. 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 Oh, man, yes. Oh, I want one. If you don't put Buffalo Springfield for what it's worth on there. No, it's not a mixtape. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we can make a playlist yes, on RDO yeah, yeah. by the end of the day. That, that'll be a C-Page XX. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, the, the, oh, man, I've got all this... Uh, that's so Maybe. There's going to be a conversation. James, do you like the doors? <laughs> James. <laughs> Any other questions about Delta Green? And finally, our last bit of audio that we're going to recycle from the Pelgan Press panel is uh, Simon uh, starting off a discussion of the Trail of Cthulhu starter box. So the other thing that we're doing next year um, is a Trail of Cthulhu starter set in a box, which has a... Uh, a board game vibe to it. Um, it was sort of inspired by lots of conversations where people who don't know anything about role-playing games will go, oh, so you sell games, what are your games? This is not a game, this is a book. What are you talking about? That is not what a game looks like. So the, the inspiration is to be able to, uh, you've got tokens, you've got uh, a map, you've got uh, cards, you've got a rule book that you can play straight through uh, and treat it exactly as you would do any other um, rulebook of a, a game you just start to play. Um, it will have the, the, the vibe of a kind of intro, uh, the, the tutorial section of a video game, so you can play it through quite quickly. But it will have all the rules of, of Trail in it. Um, but it's, it's a way of, 
uh, of introducing people to, because so many people love the mythos and Lovecraft, will be a way of introducing them to um, our game and hand-holding them through the process in a way that they're, they, they know what a game is. It will look like the games that they know. Um, did you want to say any more about that? Uh, right now, the basic, I mean, the basic marketing notion is that there is no introductory Cthulhu game for anyone. Uh, we would like to be the introduction, um, I think. And uh, the game is going to, as, as Simon says, is going to be play very straightforward. If you remember the old first edition Star Wars game, where as you're going through the book, you're playing an adventure, and then by the end, you've built a character, he's fought uh, droids, he's got an X-Wing, the whole nine yards has happened, and all of a sudden, you're in the Star Wars universe ready to keep going. We're going to try and get some of that uh, old-school Costickian uh, stackpole feel. Uh, by I'm going to channel them. We're not going to, you know, get Mike to write. That's crazy talk. Uh, but uh, there's going to be, um, uh, like like Simon says, uh, a board is probably going to be a haunted house sort of setting, and then it will have multiple utility, and you can rerun the same thing, and instead of deep ones, it's going to be. Uh, uh, extra-dimensional specter, or it's going to be the Yogg-Sothoth cultists, or whatever it's going to be. Each time you play it, the game can have a different outcome uh, using the same components, and then depending on how excited people are, we can introduce other sort of one-sheet, one-shot sort of uh, scenarios that can be played off of a basic map. And that can be a sort of thing that either evanesces through the Kickstarter, or it can be the sort of thing that we wind up doing as another uh, point of purchase sort of, uh, you know, buy it online type product, where it's like, I need a one-shape gumshoe uh, scenario, here is one. And it is, I know it's simple because it's meant for introductory players. Yeah. Yeah, so that's basically it. When, do you know when we're planning to do that? Um, well, we are thinking of kickstarting it. Yeah. We are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So we would want to have our other Kickstarter okay. started and out first. Um, so probably spring next year, maybe summer next year, mm -hmm. I think, would be when we were thinking of doing that. And then what we were going to do kind of for the stretch goals, kind of tying in with what Ken said about the short summary, was that we'd just do loads and loads of different kind of gumshoe settings for stretch goals for it. Mm -hmm. And again, as uh, downloadable content, not we're not going to... We're not going to ogre this. It's not going to. You're not going to wind up with a box that weighs eight million pounds. Here's your introduction. <laughs> yes. yeah. Aren't you happy? Your intro game costs a hundred dollars and weighs more than your kid. That's not what's going to happen. Our, it'll all be DLC. It'll be stuff that's available, and then you know, depending on how sophisticated uh, things like Create Space or, or Drive Through have gotten, maybe there will be a thing where yeah, if you want it in hardcover, you just download it. You just buy it from uh, Drive Through Cards and have a happy life. But uh, but we are not going to get into the trap of producing uh, multiple tons of cardboard at, at Belgrade because that seems hard. The alien big cat staring at us from the ridgeline over there in the moors and the strange theremin sound of a landing UFO tell us that we're once more in the fringy, weirdo confines of the Elliptony Hut. And this time we're going to talk about 
a uh, religious movement that is uh, somewhere on the boundary, perhaps, of... Uh, I, don't, I don't know whether they're uh, a cult or just plain enjoyably dotty, uh, but they certainly have an eleptonically uh, flavored flavor to them, and that is the Raelians. And because that rhymes with aliens, we know that's got to be good. Ken, where would you start off telling the uninitiated listener about the Raelian movement? Well, I guess it would depend on whether or not I were a sober news organization or an occult historian, because if I were a sober news organization, I would, of course, lead with naked free love cloning. And if I were a <laughs> yeah, occult very sober of you, right. If I were an occult historian, I would lead with race car driver Claude Vorion, who finds a UFO in 1972, I think, in the uh, depths of the Auvergne province of France. And he's driving around and he discovers a UFO and out of the UFO comes a little green man who introduces himself as Yahweh. And he's a 25,000 year old alien and he's there to talk to Claude Vorlon in the way that Yahweh comes to talk to people every now and again. And he is one of a species called the Elohim. The Elohim are interested in life on earth because they made it. They created all of it. And so they sort of have educated us over the time, lying and pretending that there are gods and things. But now we are mature enough to be told the truth that naked cloning is the way to go. And there aren't any gods, just a bunch of biotech green aliens. And uh, Claude Vorlon, it, a couple of years later, got taken to the magical jungle planet of the Elohim and met uh, Buddha and he met Jesus and he met Muhammad. And he met all the all the aliens who'd come to Earth to tell us a bunch of nonsense and hokum. And uh, they've all shook his hands and then they made him girls to have a giant Raelian orgy with. And this is the point at which people start saying, uh, can I go to this planet? And <laughs> then Claude Verlone says, yes, you can for a small fee. And that's how he started his little church. And that was about 1974 that he started it. Uh, the rail movement. There's a umlaut over the A or over the E or a diuresis. So, um, uh, I guess it's, um, that is how you can tell that it's supposed to be Raelian as opposed to Raelian. Um, and, uh, among the other things that the aliens taught, um, uh, the Elohim taught, uh, Claude is how to get, how, how to get onto the front page of the newspapers. And I think that's where the cloning comes from. That's where the nakedness, uh, helps you out. And also the symbol of the rail movement was a swastika inside a star of David, which is the best way in the world to get a bunch of people saying your name on the news. <laughs> yeah. My name is Yahweh, human, and we aliens have discovered an important power, the power of trolling. The power of trolling, yes. The Elohim are master trolls, and uh, they wanted to build a, a, an embassy for the aliens to come and land at uh, in, in Jerusalem. And the Israeli government said, here's something we're not going to ever let happen. <laughs> you build a bunch of swastika embassies for aliens in Jerusalem. And the Raelians said, what if the aliens came back and said it's a delicious candy-like swirl now? And the Israelis said, <laughs> what do we look like? And so there's been a a lengthy and, I, I, I suppose, for the Raelians, ideal situation in which they want to build this embassy, but the mean old Israelis won't let them. So keep donating now and we can show you what the embassy will look like, but we never have to take you there. And you say, Oh, this is like that really terrible Disney knockoff. Um, so the, uh, so the Raelians meanwhile get to, uh, have 
lovely gay orgies or lovely straight orgies, any kind of orgies. The Raelians are very open-minded about who you sleep with. They say, don't sleep with kids. They're against that. They're very against that. Um, partially because it turns out that there is a thriving sex tourism business of going to Asia and pretending to be a Raelian so you can sleep with fellow Raelians, which is kind of, I guess, I don't even know where that winds up, but it doesn't wind up anywhere good, I suspect. And then there's, um, uh, they're cloning and then they show up in other people's uh, protests and get attention by being naked or by having alien heads. And they, you know, they're against the war. The second lesson we have for you humans is thread jacking. Thread jacking. Yes. <laughs> so they, so they're, so they're against uh, the war. They were at the uh, Iraq war protests. They uh, are against the Catholic church for obvious reasons, because the Catholic church has covered up the truth about Jesus being a tiny green alien for Oh, these many years. Um, and, or actually, I think Jesus was a half-breed. He was half-breed, Elohim and human. Um, anyway, uh, but they, but they protest, uh, when the Catholic Church got caught covering up all of the terrible, uh, child abuse. So the Raelians have sort of glommed onto that as a way to get, uh, press. And by and large, uh, they're science positive, sex positive, crazy people. So just goes to show you can't necessarily, uh, judge a book by either its cover or by the first 50 or 60 chapters in it. Now, a few years back, they got uh, big headlines by claiming to have actually performed cloning. Uh, I gather that didn't pan out. <laughs> um, well, they say it panned out. And who are you going to believe? Crazy swastika naked people or, or scientists, Robin? The, uh, I think it's a girl named Eve is their first ever cloned, uh, person. And I don't know if they have a real girl that they pretend is a clone or exactly how that works. But they, uh, they say that the, the cloning is the cloning of, um, it is like science fiction cloning where you take the little cells and you turn it into a 25 year old duplicate of the person and then you transfer their, their mind and personality over so that you can actually, uh, you rejuvenate yourself by going into your clone self. Well, otherwise, cloning just winds up with a bunch of dumb old babies. Yeah. And yeah, who well, wants that? Yeah. There's, there's funner and faster and more secure ways to make dumb old babies. Yeah, that's not science fiction enough. Um, so it seems that if we are going to uh, take inspiration now, these are, you know, actual real uh, living people in the current day with their own movement and everything. And so you'd have to, uh, you'd want to fictionalize them uh, using your uh, right of uh, free speech and uh, artistic creation and, and not uh, trammel or, or slander them personally. But if you're to... Although in your home game, you can slander them all you want. Uh, as long as there are no uh, Raelians present, uh, you're pretty safe. Or recording devices. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so people that you kind of base on uh, this movement uh, sort of kind of indicate that they're kind of an outer layer of whatever weird conspiracy story you're dealing with because they're the ones in public. And so they're, uh, you know, apparent. Uh, they're just the sorts of people that the aliens would have moving around, um, making people comfortable with the uh, idea of aliens or making them ready to dismiss the reality of aliens because they're uh, sort of transparently uh, uh, a little bit, uh, kooky. Um, and so what would you then do to, uh, I guess you would, uh, you know, have your alien crash landing, uh, scenario and a, uh, member of this UFO cult, or I guess we need to put them in contact too, right? They're not, it's, these are scarcely, this is scarcely the only UFO cult. This is kind of the, the one that has maintained some sort of saliency where the other ones have kind of dwindled down, 
over the years. Is there any? Do you have any sense of how many Raelians uh, there are? Uh, it depends on who you ask. Uh, the Raelians are actually kind of modest about how many Raelians there are. Uh, they say that there are, you know, in the thousands, and people who have estimated and counted up think that there might be as many as 60,000 uh, here and there and about. It does seem to be somewhat growing, and it especially is growing in East Asia. It's a bigger thing in Japan and South Korea than it is in America or Europe. It, it's big in Quebec for some reason, I think, because uh, the founder speaks French. French thing, probably. And, and it makes them very excited that the aliens speak French. You know, and what the heck? They, I, there are worse reasons to be excited. Uh, and so the, even in Quebec. And, and so it, it's, it's not unsuccessful in a way, but it's not the huge roaring success that say, uh, the nation of Islam is or Scientology to pick two other alien inspired religious movements. Uh, but they're not uh, having a, a sort of a big membership crash the way the Scientologists are, as far as we can see. Well, because Claude Vorilone is apparently better at keeping his particular, uh, grasping this, uh, under control. And I don't think that they go and they like sue and berate and make life an utter misery to people who stop being aliens. Uh, in the same way that the Scientologists do. They have, they have their own, uh, sort of ways. And of course, ex-Raelians will say, this is all nonsense. But since everyone is saying this is all nonsense, I think that Claude Vorlon thinks it sort of rolls off his back. And I guess it does. As long as you've got South Koreans who, who like your crazy alien French theology, then why would you, why would you have a bad day? Uh, yeah. It's, you know, he's keeping the, uh, the kookiness sort of, uh, at least on the surface, sort of adorably dotty. We can, Certainly hope there nothing horrible happens in the future. So, uh, is there a way to kind of uh, use the is the Raelian theology too kind of transparently amusing to uh, create a setting where that's actually uh, true? How would you uh, go about uh, mining their their mythology for uh, a? game or a piece of uh, modern weirdness fiction. What I would probably do is I would say that the Raelians are not even the knowing dupes of these guys, that they're the sort of, you know, the aliens came down, the Elohim, these green aliens came down and they needed to establish their biological matter on earth somehow. And they decided to just sexually transmit it. So the people who are having, you know, great Raelian sex are also passing bits of the alien DNA. And so what the aliens message it to the, to Vorlon is, is yeah, people who are half Elohim and half human have powers to lead the human race. They're not mentioning the fact that they're going to lead them to, uh, become slaves of the Elohim. Uh, they, they're talking about how the, uh, genetic material, uh, you can build up a perfect clone. Yeah. The aliens can duplicate people and do things like that. I would take everything that the Raelians say and sort of think about it and say, how are the reptoids, the Elohim reptoids using this to mess with earth? And that the Raelians are a invasion plan that is so obviously feckless and harmless that no one would take them seriously as an invasion plan. And maybe that would be the sort of way to detour it. And maybe the player characters might be people who are investigating the Raelians for some other reason or have, um, uh, uh, you know, joined it because of, uh, some reason in their life. And so you begin with a, what, what in your life made you join an alien nudist cult? Uh, and then that draws you into the question of what happens once you start recognizing things or one of your buddies is, uh, you know, visibly turning into an Elohim or has an Elohim inside them or something. And you have that as sort of the, 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 the glove on the hand. I think that making the Raelians effective good guys is an interesting way to go. But I think that the way to do that is to say that there's a dark, 
hateful magic, a fanatic magic, a death magic that's out there. And the Raelians who don't believe in magic and believe that everything they're doing is straightforward, uh, uh, science are actually engaging in, uh, sex magic rituals that are stopping the death magic, but they don't know it and they can't know it, that they have to be unwitting participants because if they ever knew what they were doing, then they'd try to start using magic and, and that's how the trouble gets. And so the question is, what human magical leader created the illusion of the Elohim and what's his real end goal besides not ending the world, but does he have a second goal like he'd like to run Quebec or South Korea or something? You could also have a campaign where all of the player characters are clones and they start off they're in the cloning installation and uh you know they're just kind of waiting for they've had their memories installed or partial memories at least or perhaps they're sort of in a null state waiting to have the uh, full memories installed of the people that they're going to ultimately replace and basically they're just the backup copies you're just waiting around for your prime consciousness to need a new body and uh you know they want to make sure that you're healthy. So there's uh, regular trips to the gym and there's swimming and there's uh, stuff to kind of keep your uh, you tuned up. But it's sort of a dull existence and you don't know there's a wider outer world. And then you discover that there is one because the one thing that you can't do as an incipient host clone is understand that that's what you are. Because if you then realize that you're just waiting there to have another version of your consciousness imposed upon you. And then all of this admittedly quotidian existence that you know, and everything that you will be erased by this other person and their experiences out in the nasty wide world. And so then you have the uh, escape of the clones. And so the PCs are all fleeing from the, uh, uh, the clone installation. And how do you, make do in a society that uh, you know nothing about and just have the basics of language and some sort of naive mythology that has been created to keep you from trying to escape and you don't have ID, you don't uh, know anything more than sort of the basics of language and you're thrust into this scary, terrifying world and you're trying to make lives for yourselves before the uh, people who cloned you come after you in order to uh, either take you back or just, you know, to dispose of you because they don't want this uh, getting out. They don't want people knowing that that's what's happening. And so this can be, uh, it could be a sort of a Knight's Black Agent style uh, being chased by the vastly superior conspiracy through um, uh, whether it's Europe or some other place. Or you could go with a drama system game where you're always keeping one step on the move and you are developing personalities that have kind of been suppressed because you've had no real stimuli and so that all the members of the cast are changing really radically over time and you might change your uh, dramatic poles quite a bit until you settle into these new full characters and now when you have enough personality enough experience in the world you're no good as a host they can't just impose this consciousness on you. So then it goes to plan B, which is let's dispose of these people. Or you might then try to, you know, prevent this from happening again. So you go and try and find the uh, people that uh, you are clones of and to maybe uh, get rid of them, perhaps even bump them off and then pose as them in order to uh, disassemble the conspiracy from the top down. Yeah. I think that another thing might be interesting if the people that you're, 
bumping off might or might not be Raelians, that the Raelians might have um, been making clones of people in order for them to do their own swap out. And now that you've swapped out, you may or may not be part of the conspiracy yet. You're not sure. I should also mention uh, in terms of sort of fun Chrome to put on things, uh, the Raelians re- said the calendar began over uh, uh, when uh, the atomic bomb hit Hiroshima. So uh, this is the year, um, I guess, 70 now. They they can do sort of a Raelian baptism in which they put water on your head and the water uh, transmits your cellular plan to an extraterrestrial computer um, or possibly a extraterrestrial computer hidden somewhere on the earth. And that that is how baptism works. And so there's some uh, method of transmitting water uh, information through water that you could maybe make a, as a, as a magical power that either the bad guys or the good guy uh, clone guys have, but they don't know how really it works or whatever. So maybe the clones have to go, you know, find a spaceship and go to the planet to find the, uh, the programming. Maybe you're drawn there like salmon. Perhaps yeah. you don't even know that that's what you're doing is that you're being compelled uh, toward this uh, record of your original consciousness. And the problem is that once you find it, you it's gonna download, download it you. and you're not yeah. you anymore. So you have to realize uh, what's going on and reverse your uh, being pulled toward your uh, the record of your consciousness. Yeah, the um, and and I think that there could be something done with the clone aid company, the company that's going to clone you. Um, that's uh, that I mean, that sounds like it. You could swap it in for whatever the evil megacorp is, but I think it's more fun if it just seems like either a cheerful scam or a a bunch of uh deluded people trying to make cloning work, and the notion that whatever is underneath it instead of being a giant company with arms everywhere, that it just turns out that there's an awful lot of people who have, you know, oh, no, uh, the general isn't part of Clone Aid, but his daughter's boyfriend, is, his you know, his granddad is in Clone Aid or, or whatever, that the connection is this sort of weird uh, genetic tendrils going out as opposed to an impersonal relationship tendrils going out, but in a, but not in a, everyone is part of the body snatchers way, but in a, you know, it turns out it's sort of everywhere, but it's not anywhere. Uh, it's more of a fog than a um, than a, than a megacorp with its uh, with its boots stamping on your face the whole time. Um, well, as you say that, I'm getting a little concerned about this guy over in the corner with the glasses and the uh, goatee with the with the white in it. And um, I'm going to need to check on that. So uh, maybe we'll uh, promise to uh, uh, meet up next week uh, and record another podcast. And if I don't seem to remember the previous 156 podcasts, uh, you'll know why. Are you, are you going to be uh, 25 years old? Uh, oh, is he 25 years old? Well, then it's weird that his goatee is white. I'm going to have to go talk to him. I'll, That's we'll, probably die. You should go check it out. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that uh, next week. Well, I'm sure we'll be back uh, with uh, a completely uh, sex-positive, science-positive Robin uh, who's eager to talk about aliens. Uh, which is kind of like Robin, I guess, uh, next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Show us your providence by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Brace for the delights of our upcoming Patreon, launching after Robin recovers from the film festival near the end of September. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>